just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today, I was able to sit down with Ellie Sharples to chat about her diagnosis of CIDP or chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy as well as getting an insight into the earlier years of her life as she was born with a cleft lip and palate. In this episode, Ellie takes us all the way back to the beginning and explains the countless surgeries that she went through up until the age of 19. She then talks us through how, even though she swore that she would never step foot in a hospital as a patient ever again, she ended up spending months there after suddenly becoming unwell at the end of 2021. Ellie explains the diagnosis process to eventually be diagnosed with CIDP, how she manages her symptoms and how life is looking for her now. I loved being able to chat with Ellie after watching so many of her TikToks and I'm excited to help share her story with all of you today. Welcome to That's So Chronic. When we first connected on the Google form, you mentioned that you are a big fan of pizza. And (laughs) when I read that, I was like, I immediately need to talk to this person. (laughs) I am so excited as a big pizza fan myself. Before we get into the nitty gritty and we talk about everything that we're actually here to talk about today, I'm really curious, what is your go-to pizza topping situation? Oh, I'm a big fan of a margarita pizza. So like basil, tomato, cheese, just the basics. Super good. Yes. My partner hates it, but it's it's the best. Oh, that's my favorite as well. We're soulmates. (laughs) So what we are here to talk about today, you were born with a cleft lip and palate, which you've had years of surgery for. And then in December 2021, something else entered your life when you suddenly became unwell and you were eventually diagnosed with CIDP or chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. Yes. Oh my gosh, you got it right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been a journey to get to this point where we can chat today. So thank you so much for coming on to share your story with us. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. It's been so exciting. <laughs> Yay. So I guess... We should start at the beginning, and you don't really get more beginning than birth. (laughs) If people are listening and they have no idea what a cleft lip and palate is, how would you describe it to them? So basically, I was born with a hole in the front of my face. The two sides of my face didn't join together, so I had a hole Ah. in my lip right in the center that went all the way up and to the back of my mouth. So with cleft lip and palate, some people have just the lip where there's a hole in the lip, but they've got the roof of their mouth. Some people have just like the back of their mouth that's missing. And some people have all the way through. So I had all the way through from the front to the back of my mouth was totally not joined up together. Wow. And basically it just sort of, it makes like 
feeding and stuff difficult when you're a baby so I was tube fed uh for I think the first year of my life um until I had a surgery to repair the palate and bring the two bits together with like bone grafts and that sort of stuff and yeah basically it's just uh like it doesn't form together properly but they don't know why it happens sometimes it's a genetic condition but I don't have the genetic components for it so it's just a bit of a random fluke wow and so did you have the first surgery when you were a year old so I had the very first surgery ever when I was I think three days old oh wow oh my goodness it must have been so intense for your parents oh my gosh I feel like looking back I'm like I feel so bad for them having a kid now I'm like I totally would not have coped with that yeah like I cannot imagine having your baby being like in hospital and sick and I had lots of surgeries in that sort of first year of life I can't remember exactly how many uh, I'd have to ask my mum and I don't think she'd remember either yeah but I didn't technically I wasn't technically discharged from the hospital until I was a year old oh, so I was technically wow. an inpatient on leave for oh my, my entire first year of life yeah so I wow. did go home but I was technically still a patient of the ward and I'd have to go in every day to be seen by the team and that sort of stuff. And so when I was reading more about your story, you mentioned that you had your final surgery for all of this when you were 19 in 2019. Yes, yes. What was that period like growing up? Did you have to have checkups? Were you getting more surgeries throughout the years? I think like the most of the surgeries were done when I was like, before I could really remember it. Yeah. And then I had like a couple of like teeth-based surgeries from like five until 10. Mm-hmm. And then I had a really major surgery at 11 um, okay. and I had a bone graft. So they took bone from the inside of my hip wow. and put that into the front of my mouth to sort of bridge out the last little gap. And that failed actually. So I had to have another two of those operations between sort of 10 and 15. Okay. Because the first one had failed because I had an allergic reaction to the anesthetic. And so they had to finish the surgery early. It was a whole thing. Oh no. And now I'm like allergic to the most common anesthetic. They think it's just because of like exposure so many times to it that I've developed an allergy to it. Um, But it's really rare. So I've had lots of surgeries sort of between zero and sort of three and then 10 and 15. I had quite a few there. I think there was three or four. Mm-hmm. And then I had one at 18, which was like a jaw lengthening surgery. Okay. So my top jaw, they broke it and they attached these metal devices to it, which I had to screw th- like forward with like a manual screw by like a millimeter a day for two weeks or something and they moved it by like uh, 14 millimeters so 1.4 centimeters forward wow Uh, and that just sort of heals over time and then I had the other my last surgery was at 19 which was just like a nose job like a rhinoplasty um, so that I could breathe better what was it like being a kid and growing up and needing to be in the hospital for these surgeries all the time, which I can only imagine there were some kids in your class at school or when you're growing up, some friends that probably weren't in the hospital all the time. Yeah, I I never really thought about it until I was like sort of 16, 17 and being like, this is really weird. Yeah. No one else has had to do this their entire lives. And also like, 
I never really, like, I didn't notice it growing up, other than, like, occasional bullying, people being like, what happened to you? Were you in a car crash? That sort of thing. Kids are like that. I never really let it affect me until I was about 16. I was like, that's just a bit weird. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I just hadn't even registered that no one else had done this their entire lives. But, yeah, it didn't really affect me too much. I didn't let the bullies sort of get to me too much. I did sort of pick schools that had... Like, my parents picked schools for me that had better policies and that sort of stuff around bullying, just to be careful. So I went to a lot of, like, religious schools, whereas my siblings didn't. But yeah, it didn't really affect me too much growing up. I hated the hospital. I always have. I was like, after my final surgery in 2019, I was like, I'm never going back into a hospital unless I am working. Okay. Like, it's not happening. I'm done. And then I wasn't done. But... (laughs) So you swear that you'll never be in a hospital again unless you're there for work at the end of 2019. And life continues, life moves on, and you become a mum, like you mentioned before. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It's so awesome. I love it. I feel like it's always something that I really wanted to do growing up. I was always, like, I really wanted to be a mum. And, yeah, we had my son in 2020. Yep. It was awesome. I didn't go into the hospital for him either. I had him at a birthing centre because I was like, I'm not going into a hospital. It's not happening. (laughs) (laughs) I kept that pledge then. Yeah, he's super cool. He's growing up so fast. I feel like he's like talking. He can have a full conversation with you now. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. And so in December 2021, you're out shopping for a Christmas tree for your family and... Things don't go quite to plan. Take us back to that time of your life and talk us through what happened. Yeah, so I was out shopping with my elder sister, her partner, and my son uh, for a Christmas tree. I'd come up to my hometown from where we were living for like a family holiday. My partner was still down where we were living, working. He was going to be there a week later. Mm -hmm because he couldn't get the time off work. So we were Christmas tree shopping and I kind of just noticed that I had like a really sore back. Like it was just really painful. It wasn't anything super weird. I just never had a sore back that was like quite that bad before. And I was like, oh, this is really weird. But I was like, I have just lifted a Christmas tree. Maybe I've just like (laughs) pulled a muscle or like slipped a disc or something like that. I was like, it's fine. Like it's nothing to worry about. So I just get home and I'm like, I'll just have an early night. Like I got my son ready for bed and I was like, I'm just going to have a quick dinner with him and then go to bed. Yeah. Sleep it off. I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be fine. Um, And I woke up the next morning and I had sort of numbness in my hands and in my feet. And I was like, oh, that's a bit more weird. And I noticed my back wasn't sore anymore. So I like touched it and it was completely numb. Like I just couldn't feel it. It wasn't sore because it had gotten better. It was sore because it had just like gone offline. And so I couldn't feel my back at all. And I was like, oh no, like this is not good. So I was like, I didn't want to go into hospital and go to ED. And where my family's from, there's like an after hours or drop-in GP clinic. Okay. So I went there and I saw the GP there and I sort of explained to him what was going on. And I knew him because my dad's a GP as well. And so... He's like, honestly, I like I vouch for your knowledge of your like body. If you think something is wrong, you need to go to ED. Yeah. I was like, 
really didn't want to. I was like, are you sure? Like, I was trying to convince myself that I was fine. Mm -hmm. But I was like, in my head, I was like, no, I need to go to ED and see what's going on. So I took myself up to ED. I drove, probably wasn't the best decision. Wow. (laughs) But I drove myself up to ED. And I spent ages there, as you always do. Mm -hmm. The healthcare system in New Zealand is always so overrun. I spent probably like eight hours in ED most of the day. And I finally got seen. Uh, I fell over in the corridor of ED. And they sort of did my vitals, checked over everything. They were like, yeah, you've got some numb patches, but like we can't see what's going on. We think you should go home and like sleep it off. And we'll book you in for like an outpatient CT. And that should be in like a couple weeks. Oh my goodness. So I was like, I was like, sure. Like, I'm just stressed. It's probably nothing. They also kind of were like, what stress do you have in your life? Do you think this could be like anxiety based? All of the general stuff they do with women. Yeah. Um, And so I was like, I convinced myself because I didn't want anything to be wrong. So I was like, yeah, I'm stressed. Yeah. I'm going to go home. I'm going to have a good rest. And I'll wake up tomorrow and it'll be fine. Yeah. So, again, I drove myself home. Looking back, it's like a 15-minute drive from the hospital to my house. Yeah. uh, And to my parents' house where I now live. And I was like, looking back, I'm like, I was having to give myself extra braking time because my legs were so weak that I couldn't push the pedals properly. Wow. And I'm like, that was so stupid. I should not (laughs) have been driving. But I get home. And I'm like trying to get inside. We've got a couple of stairs into the house and I like fall up the stairs and I'm like, okay, this is definitely not anxiety. Yeah. And I was like, but I'm just going to go to sleep anyway because I'm already here. Yeah. And so I go to sleep and then wake up the next morning and I couldn't like sit up without pushing my hands up, like to push myself up. And I was like, oh, this is really bad. Yeah. So I was like, okay. And then I had to get my son out of his cot. And I couldn't, like, I went to lift him up from standing, and I couldn't lift him up. And he would have only been, like, 8 to 10 kilos at the time. Okay. And I was like, oh, no. Because yeah. I'm usually, like, I can carry him around. We have horses at my parents' farm, and I lift, like, 20 to 30 kilos of horse feed and hay, and that's totally fine. I was like, this is really not good. Uh, so I kind of, I managed to get him out of his cot by sort of kneeling on the floor next to the cot, yeah. leaning over, hooking my arms up underneath his like armpits and just like pulling him back onto my chest. Okay. So, <laughs> so that was, that was when I was like, no, something is definitely wrong. I need to go back and like advocate for myself. So I sort of just said to my sister, like, can you watch him? I need to go to hospital. I told him I'd be back, which I like feel so bad about doing that now. Yeah. Cause I said I'd be back. And then I wasn't back for like three months, but I went into hospital, waited around for ages again, went to the nurse's station they looked over me uh they were going to send me back out into the waiting room I stood up and like fell over in the little side room yeah that they assess you in and they were like okay we need to talk to the doctor we need to get you a room you shouldn't be sitting out there by yourself yeah wondering what's happening so that was really good they managed to get me sort of a side room a little bit away from the like doctor's station the nurse's station and stuff but Mm -hmm. like still at least I wasn't sitting yeah in the waiting room freaking out about what was going on yeah and I kind of at that point I was like oh I have an auntie who has MS and I was like do I have MS that was my first thought yeah and I also have one of my best friends growing up had a condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome yeah which is sort of the sister syndrome to 
what I'm diagnosed with now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, maybe I have that. So I was kind of freaking out because yeah. both of those aren't fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was like freaking out, waiting around. I was seen by a doctor and they kind of said, we do need to get you admitted. We'll do the CT now. But we think it could be uh, FND or functional neurological disorder. Yeah. Which at the time I knew a little bit about and I was kind of frustrated at the fact that they would say straight away, oh, it could be this. Yeah. Uh, because it's actually like it's a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to test for everything else first. Yeah before you're allowed to diagnose that. But they kind of said, maybe it could be FND. I have a history of mental illness uh, from my teens. And so they were like, well, you have a history. And so it's probably this. I was put up in the medical ward and I was put in having some knowledge of the hospital there and having a sister. She's a doctor now, but she was a student at the time. She'd been working on that particular ward for a little while. Mm -hmm. And it's the room they put people in if they think they are faking it or they're about to be discharged to go home so it's the room they put people they're not worried about in. and I was put in there oh my it's god like, it was the opposite side of the COVID ward yeah so the nurses would have to like exit the ward that I was on walk around the hospital and then back into my room it's like a single room on the opposite side of the COVID right like area so you could go through the COVID area usually but because it's a COVID yeah. area now you're not allowed through there so it's sort of all the way out there and I was sort of put in there and left like I was just put there and they were like we're gonna get a CT scan and then you'll be on your way home and I was like okay okay I can deal with this it's fine I just like my brain just goes to the point of like like just who would fake something like this like how would you even know know how to fake it even if it is entirely brain-based, right, yeah. and it's not anything sort of physiological that doctors can necessarily see, I don't think anyone would ever fake those sort of symptoms because no. they're life-changing. It's like yeah. something that no one would ever want to go through. No. Yeah. And so I kind of got labeled as like, maybe she's faking it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just going to go away in a couple of days. So we'll put her out there and we'll kind of leave it. Yeah. And I stayed there for a couple of days. I went from, they gave me a walker because I'd fallen over a couple of times at that point. And I was walking around in the walker because I hate hospitals and I was getting really bored. Yeah. Uh, and then I think it was the next day after I was first admitted to hospital that I sort of, I fell over in the corridor and I, like, I couldn't get back up. And I'm in the corridor ages away from the nursing station going, oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm just sitting here. No one knows I'm here. What am I going to do? And so I like crawl to the doorway of my room. Yeah. Who had three lovely old biddies in it. They were so cute. And I was like, help. Yeah. <laughs> and they sort of, they freaked out. They're like, oh my gosh, this poor 21 year old girl yeah. has like fallen over in the corridor and can't get up. And I was sitting there. And so they pressed their call button. And it takes a little while for someone to arrive. It's an HCA. And she sort of goes, stand up. And I was like, I would if I could. I don't think I'd be lying here yeah. on the floor if I could stand up. And she's like, you need to try. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to try. I'll try one more time just for you. Yeah. Oh, try. I hadn't thought about that before. Oh, should I try? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I tried to stand up. Of course, it didn't work. My legs had just completely gone offline. Yeah. They weren't working. And then she runs and gets the nurse. The nurse kind of tells me to stand up and then I need to try harder. And then if I don't, she's going to need a hoist. So I was like, just get the hoist. Like, yeah. hoist me off the floor if that's what that's come to. Like, I'm fine with this outcome. 
get the hoist. I want to be off the floor. Yeah. And so eventually after her trying to persuade me just to stand up, they hoist me. I go back into bed and then they're sort of like, oh, something's really like she seems to be telling the truth at this point. I don't know why that was the particular precursor to them being like, oh, she might be telling the truth. Yeah. But I get like another doctor's review. They sort of say that they think it could be Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is what my friend had had. And so they start me on a treatment called IVRG, uh, which is like a blood product of like human plasma, like donated plasma. And so they start me on that and I'm like, at least they're doing something about it now. They believe me. And so, and then I think it was that night, I had my sister around to visit and I sort of was like, oh, it's getting hard to breathe. Like I was like, it felt like something was sitting on top of my chest yeah. and that I couldn't move my muscles properly. And I was like, oh, this is, this is not good. And my sister, she was in her, I think at the time, second to last year of medical school to become a doctor. Yeah. And she was like, this is not good. Yeah. Uh, and we're kind of chatting there over dinner at like five o'clock. I'm eating food and I start like choking because my throat muscles have like sort of stopped working. Yeah. And so there's like a whole thing. They press the emergency bell. You press the emergency bell and like the whole hospital is in your room within like two minutes. And so I'm standing there choking, like sitting there choking. There's like 50 people around me like being like, what do we even do? And so eventually it's fine. They managed to like pat my back until I stopped choking. And then they're kind of like, okay, we need to do something more because the treatment that we're giving you isn't working. And so I get like a bunch of doctors come in. They sort of trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, They still think it's Guillain-Barre syndrome. And there's another treatment for it called plasmapheresis, which is basically they hook you up to essentially like a big dialysis machine Mm -hmm. and they take the blood out of your body, uh, pump it through a machine, replace the like take all of your plasma out and then put in donor plasma so instead of just putting donor plasma in and hoping it sort of overwhelms your own immune system yeah they take yours out and then put new ones in oh wow and so but the hospital that I was in didn't like they couldn't do that it's not something that smaller hospitals are able to do Mm -hmm. and so they're like and it's something you have to be in ICU for I see Uh, and because my breathing was worse they're like we'll just take you to ICU now uh, so I was admitted to ICU. I got a lot worse. I don't really remember like this last little bit, but I got a lot worse quite quickly. I wasn't able to breathe anymore. I'd become sort of completely paralyzed up to my neck. Okay. And they put me on a ventilator with a, like an intubation kit, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I was airlifted from my hospital to the larger hospital in Waikato. Okay. And yeah, I spent, I think like three months in hospital so it was like two months in ICU at Waikato yeah I did come back to the ICU at my home hospital for I think like a week and then was transferred back again okay to Waikato yeah and then I was I think like two weeks in an HDU in Waikato hospital yeah and then I spent two or three weeks in like a rehabilitation ward uh in Rotorua wow. with all the oldies I was the youngest person on the ward it was funny <laughs> so during this time excuse my ignorance but when you're on a ventilator do you, are you conscious when that is happening generally I would say as someone who has a bit of health knowledge generally no yeah like usually they won't 
keep you awake. I was heavily sedated at the start, but then I was unsedated so that they could see what I could do. Okay. And I was still intubated with an endotracheal tube, so the big tube that you see in movies that goes down your throat. Yeah. They tried to take me off of that because uh, you're only supposed to have that in for about two weeks at a time okay. before it starts damaging like your throat, your vocal cords, all of that sort of stuff. So they tried to take it out at about the two-week mark and it didn't work. So I had a tracheostomy. So basically they cut a little hole in your neck just like here, yeah. like just at the base of your neck and then put the tube in that way so okay. that you're not going past the vocal cords and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so when that's in... So I had that put in, and when that's in, you can be totally awake. Yeah. The reason why they generally don't have you awake with a ET tube, the endotracheal tube, is because some people get really distressed yeah. by it and try and pull it out. Yeah, it and makes sense. All of that sort of stuff. And so when I had the trachea, I was fully awake. And then when I had the ET tube, for the first bit, I was completely sedated for about the first week and a half. And then they sort of wean down the sedation as they're going to try and take it out. Yeah. So I don't remember much of like the first little bit. Yeah. But I remember most of my time in the ICU. Yeah. Before we carry on with the interview, I wanted to quickly jump in and say thank you for listening to That's So Chronic. If you didn't know, I've launched a monthly newsletter over on Substack. Every month you will get the latest news of my life, episodes and recommendations straight to your inbox. You can sign up at the link in the show notes. Alright, back to the interview. And so during all of this time, it's Christmas has happened yeah and it was it was Christmas and you're still a mum and you didn't come home you didn't you weren't no back I did not what was it like being a mum during all of this time as well honestly it was the hardest thing ever like I remember because I couldn't move yeah I had like and I couldn't speak either because when you have a tracheostomy if you don't have a specific valve on uh, you can't speak because okay. you can't get an ear past the tracheostomy up past your vocal cords. Yeah, so you see. make no noise. So I was like, I couldn't speak. I couldn't ask for what I wanted. Yeah. But eventually I sort of, my family got very good at lip reading. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> I could still move my mouth just at that point. Uh, sort of everything from the neck up, I could mostly move. Yeah. I could sort of ask for photos, that sort of thing. And on Christmas Day the ICU team was really awesome. I required two doctors and two nurses to go with me anywhere I went in the hospital. Yeah. And they wheeled me out to the garden. Oh. Uh, and they brought my son in with my partner and my dad for Christmas Day. Yeah. So I spent um, Christmas morning with my son, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. But yeah, being away from him was the hardest thing that has ever happened to me. Yeah. I think... It was probably quite hard for him. He'd been exclusively breastfed okay. up until the day I left. Yeah. And then all of a sudden that just had to stop. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was really hard. After Christmas Day, as I started to get better, it was like one doctor, two nurses that had to es- escort me everywhere. So they sort of agreed to do, because he wasn't, my son wasn't allowed in the hospital because he was under vaccination age yeah. and COVID and stuff. So he couldn't come into the ICU. And so every, like once a week, they would take me out to the garden and I'd sort of just spend time with him. Yeah. It was really hard because he was super scared of me. Yeah. Like 
you know, I'm in bed, I can't move, I can't talk to him and reassure him, I'm covered in, like, yep. tubes and wires and beepy things and all of that sort of stuff. So he was quite scared of me at the start, and that was really hard. But he sort of, he, he adjusted, as I sort of was there for a longer period of time, we sort of came up with ways of spending time with him, we'd video chat and, and do all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and then when I was moved to the rehabilitation ward, that was in my hometown. And so he visited every day. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was, it was really hard being away from him. It was the first time I'd sort of spent more than like, I don't even think I'd spent a single night away yeah. from him at that point. He would have been like 16 months old yeah. when I first got unwell. So yeah, I'd not spent like a single night away from him. And then all of a sudden I just disappeared. Yeah. And because like this was months and months. I think you mentioned on the form that you were discharged in March 2022. Yes. Yeah. Which is what? December, January, February, March. Four months. Yeah. Wow. So it was it was a long time. Uh, I worked it out. I think this was in my sadness. I worked out that I'd been away from him for like a quarter of his entire life. Oh, no. (laughs) I don't know. It was a terrible thing to work out. I was like. Why have I even done this to myself? Because now I'm just, like, sad that I've missed a quarter of his life at that point. Yeah. But, like, yeah, I think I spent about a quarter of his life away from him at that point in time. And, yeah, it was really difficult. So when does the diagnosis of CIDP come into all of this? So technically, so GDS and CIDP are the same disease process. The same thing happens. Yeah. With them, it's the immune system attacking the myelin sheath of your peripheral nervous system yeah and so peripheral nervous system is like not the brain and the spinal not the brain and the spinal cord everything else and so technically with gbs it's an acute illness it's a once-off thing and people get better after eight weeks yeah so they start getting better after eight weeks and the diagnostic criteria it's a direct cutoff point okay if you're still unwell or getting worse after eight weeks uh, you're diagnosed with uh, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy or CIDP. Okay. So that would have been, I think, February, early February, mm-hmm. I was diagnosed with CIDP. And it's really good that they managed to diagnose that right at that cutoff point because it has a different treatment. I was going to ask, so, how did, what is the yeah. treatment process then? With, with GBS, they treat with the plasmapheresis mm-hmm. or IVIG. With CIDP, they lots of people are treated with IVIG, and that's what I'm currently on now. Okay. But at the time, it wasn't working for me. Okay. And then with GBS, it's non-responsive to steroids. Right. But CIDP, you can like lots of people will respond with steroids, so they hadn't even tried steroids at that point. Yeah. But the, at that eight-week mark, they were like, okay, steroids. Try steroids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're just gonna just put her on the largest dose of steroids you can possibly think of. Yeah. Uh, so I was on IV steroids for like three days and then I think it was 60 milligrams a day of prednisone. Uh, and that worked straight away. Like two days after starting it, I was starting to get better and we were like, thank God this is over. It's only up from here. (laughs) When you say you started to feel better, does that mean that you would get some feeling back? Yeah. So I'd had periods of getting more and less feeling okay. over the entire time I was there because the plasmapheresis, how it works is like I would see an improvement the like a couple hours after having the plasmapheresis where I could like move my fingers more yeah. 
or like wiggle my uh, arm or something Mm -hmm. like that. But then after about a week of being off the plasmapheresis, I started to get worse again. Yeah. So I get like a small improvement and then I get worse again and go back to where I was at my worst. And so over that time, I'd sort of had some movement and then it was gone again. And then when I started the prednisone, the steroids, uh, it was like a day or two after I started to be able to like move my hands, lift my arm above my head, all of that sort of stuff. And it's sort of how, how it works is it goes when you're first getting it, it goes from your feet up. Right. And when you're, when it's going, it sort of goes down like a water level. Yeah. So I got movement at my like arms and hands and then like chest, stomach, legs and my legs took a very long time to sort of come back I was only sort of getting them back about a week to two weeks before I was discharged yeah and they haven't entirely come back fully like I still can't feel my feet okay uh and I have foot drop on my right foot Mm -hmm. which I can't lift my ankle up very well and so yeah it was super exciting I was also really scared yeah I think a part of me was like I've been ill for so long. I'm now getting better. What if I get worse again? Yeah. Like I didn't trust that it was going to work. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of like, I'm getting better. I don't want to get worse again, but that could happen. Yeah. And so it was both like super exciting, but also like kind of scary. Yeah. uh, In a way. With the rehabilitation, were you having to sort of like learn how to do some of these movements again, having not been moving for the longest time? Yeah, I definitely had to teach myself how to walk again. It's like my whole body just forgot how to, like, move its muscles properly. Like, I'd tell it to do something and it just wouldn't. Or to do something, like, in a slightly different way than what you were wanting it to do. Yeah. I spent a lot of my time in hospital, even when I was completely paralyzed, trying to get my body to move. Yeah. And trying to remember exactly the muscles that you move to walk or to move your arm or to write and that sort of stuff. And I think that made my rehabilitation faster. Okay. uh, Because I'd sort of been going over it for so long that when the nerves came back online, uh, it was a little bit easier for me to move them. Yes. What was the feeling like when you were eventually discharged from the hospital or from the rehabilitation clinic? My discharge was a little bit weird. I went out on weekend leave. Okay. So I I was told that I could go home for the weekend, but I wasn't allowed to be discharged because I hadn't sort of come to my house and assessed that it was all safe. Mm-hmm. I went out on weekend leave and I, on Sunday night, I was like, I'm not going back. <laughs> like I, I was like, I'm not sleeping in a hospital bed ever again. I need to sleep in my own bed. I've slept in it for two nights in a row yeah. and I cannot go back to sleeping in a hospital bed yeah and so I like call the ward on the morning and I'm like I'm not coming back and they're like you need to and I'm like but I don't want to and we sort of came to the agreement that I would come into the hospital in the mornings to see the doctors and then I could stay at my own house perfect I think that's a great compromise exactly I got to sleep in my own bed it was lovely Um, And I think it was like a couple of days after that that they decided, hey, you know, she's coping at home. Yeah. She doesn't want to be here. Yeah. Uh, The sort of physiotherapy and occupational therapy that I was getting, I could drive with, like I had someone that could drive me to go to those things during the day. Mm -hmm. And so like, you can just go, like, that's fine. We'll discharge you 
and I was like that was so exciting I was like again I said to myself I was like I'm never going back to hospital yeah (laughs) it'll happen at some point but I'm just telling myself that I'm not going back I'm not going to stay another night wow and so this is (laughs) at the beginning of 2022 what is the treatment plan then moving forward basically it was at that point it was steroids and an immunosuppressant so I was on 60 milligrams a day of prednisone which is quite a large dose uh and I was on mycophenolate okay uh which is basically just a an immunosuppressant and so I was on both of those things I stayed on them for a really long time I was seeing my neurologist every three to four weeks I think Mm -hmm. to sort of see how things were going I was recovering really quickly, so I was walking quite well by, like, April, May, okay. uh, which is a lot faster than they expected. I was told that I was going to be in a wheelchair for two years. Yeah. And so everyone was super happy with my process, and we kind of didn't want to mess with it. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, it's working. Yeah. Like, we'll leave it as it is. But the thing with prednisone is, like, the side effects just yeah. got too much for me. I put on, I think... I nearly doubled my weight wow. from what I left the hospital with to when I came off it in a year, I like doubled yeah. what my weight was. I was like swollen and puffy and just like couldn't sleep, had a short, short fuse, got grumpy at everyone, yeah. all of that sort of stuff. And I was like, I need to come off of it. Uh, and then there's also like it has, you can get like heart disease and diabetes and all of these sort of things. And so it was a discussion with my neurologist, like I don't want to be on it anymore. Yeah. What other options do we have? And he was also like, you can't be on this forever. If you're on prednisone at such a high dose for such a long time, he was like, you're 20, you're going to die in your 40s. Wow. You know, of a heart attack. And usually, like, CIDP is generally older people. Okay. And so he was like, this is kind of difficult territory. Because if you've got a 70, 80-year-old who's on a really high dose of prednisone, it kind of is what it is. Yeah. Like... It might shorten their life a little bit, but not significantly. Whereas you've got a 21-year-old on such a high dose of steroids for their entire life, that's going to cut it short quite significantly. And so there's, I mean, the options for treatment really are uh, prednisone, so steroids and uh, immunosuppressants, and then IVIG, which I'd already tried and was a little bit hesitant to try again. And I'm really glad I did because it's what I'm on at the moment. Uh, and it works. I go to the hospital every six weeks for two days. And like it's like six hours that I sit in a chair yeah. and have an infusion for two days in a row every six weeks. Okay. Uh, and it works really well uh, at managing my symptoms. I've been able to come off the steroids, come Yay. off the immunosuppressants. So I don't have to take any pills every day. Yeah. And it's just the infusion. Okay. Uh, I get a little bit of symptoms before I have my infusion. Mm-hmm. So I'll, like, I'm fine, and then about a week before, I'll get more pain, and I'll get more numbness, and I'll feel, like, really tired. Okay. Uh, And sort of, like, do we move it forward? But I'm kind of happy with the six weeks. I feel like five weeks is, like, too often. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, But, like, yeah, so I'm on the IVIG. There's another treatment called rituximab, Mm -hmm. which I can't remember what else they use it for. I think, like, myosinthia gravis. Um, and a few other things and that isn't a treatment by itself but it can increase the like effect of IVIG and prednisone okay so you can be on it less or it works better 
but that comes with its risks. Yeah. How would you describe how you how your symptoms are day to day, like now in 2023? I would say overall, I'm super lucky. I have I can't feel my feet very well, uh, which has some issues. Like I, like I get, uh, I've rolled my ankle and not noticed yeah. that sort of stuff. <laughs> uh, I'm a little bit wobbly. Like sometimes I, I don't know how to explain it to people, but it's kind of like I feel a little bit drunk. Yeah almost all of the time Mm -hmm. Uh, and that gets sort of worse as I get closer to my infusion I have like numbness and tingling in my hands up my legs I have chronic pain yep so like chronic nerve pain I've tried a bunch of medications for it none of them has worked and so I just decided like I'm gonna deal with the pain and come off all the medications because the ones that did work only worked a little bit and the side effects that I was getting from them yeah were not fun so I was like well I'm just gonna deal with the pain uh because I can sort of rationalize to myself that like the pain is it's not in my head yeah but it's not actually hurting me yes yeah yeah you're not in danger exactly yeah but yeah that's pretty much all I deal with on a daily basis I have fatigue Mm -hmm. um and that sort of stuff uh, yeah it's pretty much that's pretty much it I've had some weird stuff with like uh, optic neuritis yeah which is usually it's not common with CIDP because CIDP is a peripheral nervous yeah. system disorder but I do have like in my individual case uh, because it's a snowflake yeah illness I do have some central nervous system involvement okay. so I have a little lesion on my spine uh, a lesion in my brain and then I get uh, like optic neuritis flare-ups where I get like swelling and yeah. demyelination of my optic nerves mm-hmm. so I've had that and then also this one's like a little, a little bit embarrassing but like I think it's pretty common with MS as well my auntie has it where it's like um my I think it's the the I can't remember what the name of the nerve is but it's the one that like does your bladder and stuff yeah. and I do not need it no I need to go toilet yeah until like <laughs> the last 10 seconds yes I'm the exact same (laughs) (laughs) and so I have that and then I also have recently the thing has been is I have like some like an effect on my vagus nerve which is the one that does your stomach Mm -hmm. so I've got like nausea okay vomiting they think that like it slowed down my stomach a little bit and I've got like a really like minor or like low-grade gastroparesisy type thing yeah uh, but they're not 100% sure. Okay. And I don't really want to investigate it at this point. I'm like, it's not affecting my life that much. Yep. And I'd rather not. Like, there's nothing they can do for it anyway. Okay. So I'm just like, well, yeah. it is what it is. I don't really need to know if I can't do anything about it. Yeah. Do you know or have you been able to connect with anybody else that has CIDP? Um, I chat occasionally to a few people on TikTok. Yeah. But it's not a hugely common yeah thing and lots of the people who get it are older yeah or like there's a few kids who have it okay but like the sort of like 15 to sort of 40 year old bracket is is there's not a lot of us yeah uh and i've i've found like three or four people that i chat to occasionally on tiktok uh and like there's a couple of Instagram that I chat to every now and then, but not really. I haven't been able to find a whole heap of people. Yeah. And like there's a Facebook group for New Zealand, uh, but it's been taken over by like spam bots. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, wow, that's no help because yeah. it's just like 
posts every 10 seconds about like some celebrity who's died but they haven't actually died oh no and so it's just like what is the point yeah um but that's how I found you I was kind of searching for like someone who had a similar experience uh it was actually the first thing I could do when I could use my phone yeah it was like I went on all the social media platforms and I was like chronic illness CIDP Gillian Barr yeah neurological disoder yeah like, oh, well, I'm so glad the that the algorithm words. threw that so chronic in your direction. <laughs> it did. It was so good. I have actually found it super helpful. Like being able to hear, even though the stories aren't always the same, there's like little bits of people's stories that are like, I have, I've, yes. I've experienced that. And then also like just seeing how resilient people yeah. have been yeah, has been like super helpful. Yeah. Speaking of TikTok, I always love when your TikToks come up on my For You page. <laughs> What inspires you to be so open about living with CIDP? Um, I think it was totally the fact that it was like, it took me a really long time to find anyone that had been diagnosed with CIDP. And even with finding people that have, like there's only like tiny little bits that I can relate to because everyone sort of presents really differently. I'm like, well, if there's not that many stories of people out there who have the same thing, as well as there not being people who have experienced the exact same thing as me, mm-hmm. there may be someone who's just received a diagnosis would find what I have to say or what I've experienced as valuable. Yeah. So I was like, it's worth doing it. Absolutely. And listeners might be a little bit surprised hearing how much you hate hospitals. I mean, <laughs> obviously, because you've been through a lot and you've had to go through the whole hospital system a lot throughout your life, people might be surprised to hear that you now spend quite a lot of time in hospitals because you <laughs> are nearly a qualified nurse. Yeah, I I get it a lot in my like in person as well. People are like, "Why are you doing yeah. this? If you hate hospitals, why would you then inflict yourself to a lifetime spent in hospitals?" And I think the biggest draw for me is like I'd always wanted to be a nurse. Yeah, growing up, I was like. The people that made the biggest difference for me as a child were the nurses, were the ones that were really kind and sort of spent that time to talk to you and that sort of stuff. And so I was like, I want to be like them. And so that was my sort of, as I was growing up, I was like, I really want to be a nurse. And I'd started my training before I became unwell with CIDP. And I seriously considered dropping out. I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore, Mm -hmm. but I think... The difference that you can make as a nurse is huge. Yeah. And if I can make a difference for someone in the same way that some of the nurses made for me, and also if I can change the culture yeah. of nursing in a small way and in the culture of medicine in a small way to remove some of the negative experiences that I had yeah, uh, would be huge. If I can make that difference, then everything would be worth it. Yeah, I just think you're incredible. And I know for sure (laughs) that you will be changing the lives of so many people with the work that you're doing. (laughs) I guess my final question for you is if you could go back to December 2021, when you've just been admitted to hospital and nobody really knows what's going on. If you could go back to that time and say something to yourself, knowing everything that you know now and also knowing how life looks for you now, what do you think you would say to her? Oh, that's a hard one. I think 
I would probably just say to trust yourself. Yeah. To trust your body and that listening to your body is the most important thing you could ever do, whether you're unwell or whether you're perfectly healthy, is you're the only person that has lived in your body your entire life. And you know it better than any nurse, any doctor, any other person. And you have a right to sort of stand up for yourself and say, this is what I think is going on. I need someone to listen to me. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what I would say. Cause the first sort of bit of my hospital experience was difficult. Yeah. Was it was people didn't believe me. And I think if I had started, stood up for myself a little bit more from the start, things might've been a little bit different. Yeah. So I'd say just trust yourself and advocate for yourself. Yeah. Such good advice for anybody listening as well. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing your story with me and everybody listening today. I'll make sure to drop your TikTok handle and your details in the <laughs> show notes of this episode so people can go and find out more about you themselves. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It's been really awesome. Yay. And I'm so glad that the sun's coming out for you there. I know. The sun is like bearing down <laughs> now. It's so, it's blue skies. I love that. I know that I've been a little bit distant here as I took a bit of an unpredicted break to sort some things out behind the scenes. So thank you so much for sticking around and for listening today. Like I mentioned in the episode, I'll make sure to pop a link to Ellie's TikTok in the show notes. And that's also the place where you can find the link to sign up to the monthly newsletter and where to find me on Instagram or TikTok. It's super easy though. I'm just at That's So Chronic on all platforms. As always, if you're enjoying these episodes, make sure you've pressed follow so you never miss a new one which I am back weekly episodes will resume from today and don't forget to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify that really helps That's So Chronic get into more ears around the world to hopefully spread awareness and more importantly hope